Big prayers can make you feel foolish. Praying big prayers can make you feel foolish. We've kind of been using the illustration of Hani, the circle maker, who, uh, who, prayed a, who drew us in the first century B.C., before, uh, before Jesus Christ. He took his staff and drew a circle around himself during a drought, and he prayed and said he was not going to, not leaving the circle until, until it rained. And so he stayed in that circle and prayed, and it started to sprinkle, and then, and then he says, not for such rain have I prayed, and then God sends a downpour, and then Hani says again, not for such rain have I prayed, and then it starts to rain, a nice slow rain. But Hani must have felt foolish, drawing a circle with everyone there watching, saying that he's not going to leave the circle until it rains. And he must have felt the same when it was, when it was just a sprinkle. He must have felt really foolish, praying again in that circle for, for more rain. And then, and then he must have felt foolish again when it started to downpour, and, and he had to pray again, more specifically for rain. When you draw a circle around yourself and you commit yourself to staying in that circle until it rains, there are only three ways out. One, you give up on the prayer and break your vow, which is probably what a lot of people do when they pray prayers and and make vows to God like that. Two, you die in the circle, waiting for it to rain. Or three, God answers your prayer. And that's what happened for Hani in that circle. Every now and then, I find myself driving down the freeway a little too fast. If you know me, you know what that means. You know that's a a stretching of the truth. And the real truth is I drive too fast most of the time. Although not today, I don't think. I don't think I drove too fast today. But I find myself going a little too fast down the freeway. And then every now and then, I I, I come across a cop or a patrol car that's traveling on the freeway. And... And, and, you know, then you kind of slow down, and, and you, I don't know if you do this, but this is what I do when I come up, when I come up on a cop. I'm looking, kind of looking through the windows to see, you know, there are some cars that are, that are cop cars, but other people own those same cars, and you're kind of looking through, and when the windows are tinted, you're kind of looking real close to see, is that, is that a cop? can't tell if that's a cop. Or sometimes one will pull up behind you, and, and, and someone will have like a ski rack on the top of their car, and you're looking in your rearview mirror, and, is that, a, is that a cop? I can't tell if that's a cop. So you slow down, you're playing it safe, you know. But then either the cop passes you or you, you get up close enough where you can see, okay, this is, a, this is a Washington State Patrol. I'm not going to pass this guy. I'm going I'm to put my hands at 10 and 2. I'm going to slowly back off, give, give some space. I'm going to get behind him, show some respect, do that kind of thing. Clark County Sheriff, same, same thing. If it's Clark County Sheriff, I'm going to give him plenty of space. I'm not going to go speeding past but every once in a while, what will happen on I-5, you know, sometimes there are, there are police that are they're transporting prisoners from state to state, from, you know, from up in Washington down to Oregon and vice versa. Sometimes there are people who, who are Portland police officers who live up in, in Vancouver and Clark County somewhere, and they drive their Portland uh, police motorcycle. I've seen that guy a whole bunch of times driving on his commute on the way back to church. But sometimes I'll pull up on a patrol car that, that's not, you know, that's not for Washington State. It's a, it's Washington. It's an Oregon car, or, or I pull up on on a sheriff that's from Cowlitz County, but I'm still in Clark County, or, or, or a police who's who's from you know Tacoma or somewhere up in Seattle or something like that. And when I when I discover that, I know that he's outside of his jurisdiction, and I'm free to. I don't. I, I don't. I'm still not. I'm not brash about it, but I just kind of ease my way past this guy, and then I go on about my drive home and get home as quickly as I can because he's outside of his jurisdiction. There's not a whole lot he can do unless I'm going completely insane 
then, uh, then he can get special permission in an extreme situation. Well, have you ever felt foolish praying for something that seems a little or a lot outside of your jurisdiction? Like you're that, you're that cop and, and you see something happening, you know, and, but you're outside of your jurisdiction. You really can't intervene. Maybe there are times when, when there's something outside of your jurisdiction when you're praying. It, it's, it's like you, you, know, you know your world. You know the, the realm that you live in and, and you know the sphere of life that you live in, and, and, and you, can, you can operate pretty safely. You know how things work. You know, you know if, if you do this, then that's going to happen. But, but sometimes when you're praying a prayer, th- there's a time when you need something a little bit bigger, a little bit outside of your jurisdiction. Like, you want to see God do something, but you know that you're in enemy territory, and it seems like God isn't in control where you are. Or maybe you feel like you know this is God's territory, but, but, but it's wrong, to ask God to do big things. Well, if you, were, if you were clearly in God's territory and you could see God with your own, eye, own eyes and hear God with your own voice and own, own ears, you could hear his voice with your own ears, then, and you had seen him do a lot of miracles, you had seen him work in miraculous ways, you, you might be a little more prone to ask him to move in a miraculous way. But, but when you're outside of what seem, when you seem to be outside of the jurisdiction where God normally moves in miraculous ways, then you might feel like what you're asking doesn't line up with God wants, what God wants to do. But there have been a lot of people with big faith who, if you were an outside observer, you would say that they were asking outside of their jurisdiction. But God still responded. Noah built a boat with no water in sight. Why would you build a boat out in the middle of a desert? The Israelites marched circles around Jericho without doing anything as an army to defeat them. And David took on Goliath with a slingshot and five smooth stones. All of those don't make sense in a human thinking, in the human jurisdiction. But God still moved in amazing ways. The boat that Noah built saved him and the entire human race. The walls of Jericho, as we talked about last week, they fell down, and Israel conquered Jericho. And David knocked out Goliath with one of those stones and then cut off Goliath's head with a sword. In his book, Your God is Too Small, if you haven't read that book, it's an old book, but it's definitely worth reading. It's a small book. J.B. Phillips says, Many men and women today are living often with inner dissatisfaction without any faith in God at all. This is because they have not found with their adult minds a God big enough. They have not found with their adult minds a God big enough. We need to start to understand that the laws of nature don't always apply to God's kingdom. He exists. God exists outside of space and time. He exists outside of the four dimensions that, that govern our natural world. So while many of the things that that we're asking for seem impossible to us, they are not impossible with God. In fact, Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. That's Matthew chapter 19. In that specific situation, there there, there might be someone that, that seems like they're never going to come to Christ. They're never going to put their faith in Christ. In this instance, it was a rich man, and Jesus said, it's easier for for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And the rich man says, this, what are we to do then? This seems impossible. And Jesus says, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. So that person that you might be praying for in your life, that, that you're hoping is going to come to Christ, but it just seems impossible that they ever will. It might be impossible in human terms, but in God's terms, it's not. Things that are impossible in our jurisdiction are not when they're in God's jurisdiction. They're well within God's rule and reign, and there is nothing outside of God's power. But we also need to understand that with great miracles does come risk. There is the risk of looking foolish. There is the risk of stepping outside of our comfort zone. Outside of our comfort zone. But at the same time, we need to realize that it is God's to decide how and when to work miracles. It is God's to decide how and when to work miracles. J.B. Phillips, in that same book, says, God will inevitably appear to disappoint the man who is attempting to use him as a convenience, a prop, or a comfort for his own plans. But God has never been known to disappoint the man who is sincerely wanting to cooperate with God's own purposes. With that said, we don't know how and when God wants to work miracles. So we pray in faith at all times, believing that God will work a miracle. We may spend years, even decades of our lives, praying for God to work a miracle. We may spend years and decades of our lives waiting for God to fulfill a promise, and yet it's in God's timing that that promise will be fulfilled. Because we also know, as we've said before, when we're talking about discipleship, Without him, we can't, but without us, he won't. We know there are things that, that, that we can't do. There are, there are areas of our life or in prayers that we're praying in our life that, that, are, that are big, that are outside of our jurisdiction, that, that we can't do on our own. And without him, it won't happen. But the truth is also that without us, God won't. So much of the time throughout Scripture, there have been times where, where God had something that he wanted to do, and instead of just you know, enacting his will and forcing his will on the people, he chose to work through one of his faithful servants like Moses. Without him, we can't, but without us, he won't. God rarely moves without the prayerful interaction of his children. We say, if it's God's will, it will just happen, won't it? Sure, if it's God's will, we're not going to be able to stop it by our inaction. But, but what if God wants to involve you in the process? What if God wants to include you in the miracle? What if God wants to use this situation to grow your faith? What if, what if God wants you to pray and pray and pray and pray for God to do something, and, and through that process, he's building up and strengthening your faith in him? The growing of our faith is a big priority. The first priority when God works a miracle is God's glory. I want to make that very clear. When God works a miracle, he, he is drawing attention to the fact that he deserves all glory, honor, and praise. That is what God is doing. But there's another motive that God has when he works miracles throughout Scripture, and that is to build the faith of the people involved. There's so many miracles that, that were to build the faith of the people that were experiencing them. And they, they often had to act in what seemed like a foolish manner in order for that miracle to take place. Like, like Noah having to build an ark to experience the miracle. And like David and, and, and Moses had to do the same thing. Have you ever thought about Moses? 
and the insanity with which he acted and the faith that he had when he followed God? For instance, just the very first part of the story where, where Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Have you thought about that? Like Moses is going, hey, Pharaoh, uh, you, you know those, uh, well, there's 600,000 men plus women and children. You know those 1.4 to 2.8 million people uh, that, are, that are currently you know, making your kingdom work? You know, that, that, you're, that you're using as slave labor for free? You know all those 2.8 million people that, 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 that your kingdom relies on? Well, let them go. That's a, that's a big statement to go and make to the Pharaoh, who could have, at that moment, at that instant, decided to kill Moses. And, and, and then they're, you know, they're, they're leaving, and, and God tells them to stop before they, get, you know, before they cross the Red Sea. <laughs> Okay, so you want us to stop? You want us to stop here? You want us to stop? We're, we're trapped here. There's no way out. You know, we're stuck in this in this spot. You you want us to stay here while Pharaoh's army chases us down? We're going to stay here, right, in this spot. Okay. Well, Numbers chapter eleven, we have another incredible encounter with with Moses and God, where God interacts. So, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to Numbers chapter eleven this morning, where this story is found. To set the stage at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1 says, Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. The people complained about their hardships within the hearing of the Lord. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt, and at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We have, we've never seen anything but this manna. The people have been wandering in the desert. And they've grown sick of God's provision for them. God had been providing them manna. And manna had everything that they needed to sustain their lives. And, and yet they, they, they grow sick of God's provision. They grow, they grow tired of the way God was providing for them. And they start longing for their life as slaves. They start longing for, for the life for what, when, they were, when they were enslaved, when they could eat whatever they want, forgetting that though they were free to fill their stomachs, that freedom came at the cost of their enslavement. Well, this causes God and Moses a great deal of frustration. Verse 11, Moses asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to, to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, then please go ahead and kill me if I have found favor in your eyes. And do not let me face my own ruin. To which God replies, Bring me 70 of Israel's leaders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and, and I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. 
What? <laughs> Where did that come from? I mean, Moses goes to God because the people are whining and complaining about not getting any meat. They need some meat. Give us meat to eat, Moses. We need some meat. And God's reply to Moses' request about dealing with the people is, he's going to give them more leaders to help carry the burden? Gee, that's great, God. Uh, but that's not going to shut the people up. <laughs> They're going to keep whining and complaining for meat. First question, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever prayed a prayer to God and you had this urgent, immediate need that you were dealing with and this situation where, where you really needed God to intervene and you had this obvious problem sitting right in front of you that, that you needed God to deal with? Have you ever felt like that where, where you're praying for God to deal with this problem and then God answers your, your request with a, an answer that seems totally unrelated? Moses is exasperated because the people want meat and he can't provide meat. They're out in the middle of the wilderness. He has nowhere to get them meat. And he goes to God with this request, and God says, bring me some leaders. We're going to install some leaders. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe you could share an experience where, where you, you were praying for God to address a certain, a certain need in your life, and, and then God answered in a different way. We'll give you a minute or two to respond. I felt that way. You're asking for God to do something, and he answers in a different way than you anticipate. And you want to say, thanks, thanks for that, God, but what I really need is... And you start talking to God, thanks for that, but what I really need is... Shad says, um, help save my apartment that I might, might lose, but I still lost it still. Now I'm in the best place I could ever, I could ever have imagined. And he worked for my good despite what I wanted. Thanks, Shad. Russ says, and my brother was killed by a drunk driver. Uh, through that, my mom and dad gave their life to Christ. They forgave the driver. Could not have imagined that. My parents didn't want anything to do with God. Thanks for sharing that, Russ. Marilyn says, trust and believe. Thanks for that, but, but what I really need is, we start to tell God what, what we really need. When, when God probably knows what we really need. Just wait for it, you know, just, just wait for it, because God loves people who are faithful and patient. Like, you, you want this thing, and God gives you something else in the meantime. Well, what we need to do is we just need to wait for it, because God loves people who are faithful and patient, people who know that God is going to come through, and, and they know that, that God is going to come through, and they never, they never seem to be in a hurry about getting God to come through or demanding God to meet their needs right now. God will inevitably appear to disappoint the man who is attempting to use him as a convenience. Well, God says to Moses, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or for two days or five, ten, or twenty days. But for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? Can you imagine being Moses and, and hearing that response from God to, to the prayer request that you had just prayed? And be, oh, okay, God, 
That's a good one. I mean, so much meat that is going to be coming out of their nostrils. Nice, nice word picture. That's great. Uh, but I'm sitting here in the middle of nowhere with more than 600,000 men, not counting their wives and children, and you say, I'm going to give you meat to eat for a month. Just how is that going to happen? I mean, if we slaughtered all the animals that we had, we couldn't provide meat for everyone, and I'm pretty sure that there, there aren't enough fish in the sea either. So just how is this supposed to happen? You really expect me to tell the people to get ready for meat? I've been there. I remember the second Easter that I was here. I, I felt like God really wanted us to, to, to push for this number 420 in our Easter services. And, and at, the, at the time, our church was running about 100 or around 190 to 100 in attendance, average attendance on a Sunday. And it was, Easter was falling on April 20th, 420, and we did this whole campaign, 420, uh, by 420, through 420, using Mark 420 as the kind of the, the, the hinge verse there. We like, like verses here at this church, but I remember, I remember the first time I started sharing that, and as we kind of, you know, we kind of shared this throughout the course of those months leading up to Easter, I felt, this seems like, this seems a little bit outside of our jurisdiction. This seems a little bit beyond our reach. J.B. Phillips says, Many men and women today are living often with inner dissatisfaction without any faith in God at all. This is because they've never found a God that is big enough. God says to Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. Other translations say, Is the Lord's power too little? Or is there any limit to my power? And we know this intellectually. We know, we know there is no limit to God's power. Of course, we know God is omnipotent. He's not limited in any way. But experientially, it's a little bit different. We, we know intellectually there's no limit. But yet in our life's experience, we, we haven't really seen God move in the way we need him to move at the moment. See, our problem is never that God's power is limited. Our problem is that we are limited in our understanding and experience of God's infinite power. Our God is too small. Well, God answers the people's ten temper tantrum for meat, and he does it this way. He says, Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep all around the camp, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers. And then they spread them out all around the camp. Now, to help you understand just how big this miracle is, this, the, this response of God by sending this, this rainstorm, this quail storm, you know, to, to the people, two cubits deep is about three feet so all over, it was three feet deep. Ten homers is about you know, one to one and a half tons per person that each person collected. So one, and a, one to one and a half, two to three thousand pounds of quail per person that they collected. A day's walk in, in the Hebrew, in Hebrew tradition is about 15 miles. So in every direction for 15 miles, about a day's walk, there was quail two feet deep. That's about 700 square miles of two feet deep quail. Three feet deep quail. To help you understand, Vancouver's square area, square mile area, is 40, about 45 square miles. The, the, the square miles of Portland is about 145 square miles. So it's an area that, that's about 
three times as great as the Portland-Vancouver metro area, three feet deep in quail. That's a lot of quail. That is a lot of quail. They, they would literally have it coming out of their, their nostrils. Another quote from your God is too small. Some Christians prevent themselves from growing up. So long as they imagine God, that they imagine that God is saying, come unto me, when he's really saying, go out in my name, they're preventing themselves from ever putting on spiritual muscle or developing the right sort of independence quite apart from the fact that they achieve very little for the cause to which they believe they are devoted. They achieve very little apart from the, the cause that they're devoted to. God does say, come unto me. That is, that is a call of Jesus in the New Testament. It says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. But, but he also calls us in. He, he draws us in to send us out. And, and he calls us into walking with him and relationship with him, not just so that, so that we may receive and, and get the things that we want from God, but so that we may take the kingdom of God out to those who still need it. He calls us in to send us out. Verse 33 of Numbers 11 ends this way. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore the place was named Kibroth Hatava, because they were, they, there they buried the people who had craved other food. That name Kiproth Hatava means graves of craving. The people were buried in graves of craving. So there's a great contrast in the story between the Israelites and Moses. Moses is wanting to lead the people in a way that honors God, and he's carrying the burden of leading these people on his shoulders, and, and he wants them. You can see later in the chapter when, when these other leaders who are anointed with the Holy Spirit, there are two that are outside in the camp, and they start prophesying when the Spirit comes on them, and, and the people of Israel say, come make them stop, they're, they're prophesying. And, and Moses' response to that is, I wish that everyone, all of the Israelites, would have God's Spirit on them so that they could experience the presence of God like he does. He wants God's best for the Israelites, and yet the Israelites, by contrast, are the exact opposite. They, well, they want, what's, they want what they want. They, they want to fill their stomachs. They are driven by their own desires. The Israelites were concerned with a come-unto-me view of God. They, they, they were coming to God to get from God what they wanted. But Moses had a go-out-in-my-name view of God. As a result of this, the people who craved food beyond what God was providing for them died from a plague and were buried in graves of craving. That quote again, God will inevitably appear to disappoint the man who is attempting to use him as a convenience, a prop, or a comfort for his own plans. God has never been known to disappoint the man who is sincerely wanting to cooperate with God's own purposes. So should we not pray for God to do big, insane things that are beyond our understanding? No, we absolutely should pray for those things. 
We should pray for God to do miracles. We should pray for, for God to work in miraculous ways. We should pray for people to be healed. We, we should pray for, for, people to, for marriages to be restored. We should pray for God to intervene in ways that we don't anticipate, expect, or understand. We definitely should be praying those prayers on a regular basis. We need to understand that there is no limit to God's power and that when we are children of God, we are part of his kingdom. We are no longer citizens of the earth, restrained by the jurisdiction of the earth. We are now brought up into God's kingdom of light and there are no restraints on God's kingdom. And he wants to work through his children in miraculous ways to show his glory to the children who have yet to receive him. That is what he wants to use us for. We need to understand there is no limit to God's power, but, but we have to be children like Moses who seek first God's kingdom and seek first his righteousness and not the desires of our stomachs. So I think we need to ask ourselves as we're praying these big, audacious prayers, when we pray these prayers, whose kingdom are we seeking, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of me? Am I seeking to expand the kingdom of God and bring the lost into the kingdom, or am I seeking to expand the kingdom of me through this prayer? But for praying for God's glory, for God's credit, then we need to pray and step out in faith like the Israelites, the leaders of the Israelites had to do with Joshua when they had to step into the water before God would part the waters. We have to step out in faith and expect that the God who is outside of our jurisdiction can do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or imagine.